Apple presents events at the Apple Store. Let's take a look at the trailer for Hyde Park on Hudson. Hello? Who is that? The president wishes to see me. I've been invited to visit with Franklin at his home in Hyde Park. Daisy, what a rad trip. His mother said he needed to take his mind off his work and the pressures of being the president. What do you say you and I get out of here? Go someplace quiet? That spring, Franklin showed me a world I never knew existed. Where's the police car going? Sometimes they have to catch a crook or something, I suppose. And soon, we became best friends. Mr. President? They just left Beacon. Good. It won't be too long. No king of England had ever visited America before. So nice of you to come, Mr. President. Forgive me for not getting up. So Franklin invited them here to the country where we could all relax. Your mother has now told me for the tenth time not to call her royal highness Elizabeth. Do you mind if I call you Elizabeth? No. No. It was just one of those At the things. picnic, the president's wife has organized just that hot dogs be served things. as our main dish. Are they trying to make fun of us? I don't know. Just one of those it's going to be a big, big success. Just one of those She's obviously his mistress. Look over there. The secretary. They'll see us. I am. The king seemed nervous. Without some help from us, there soon might not be an England to be king of. We are not going to serve the king and queen of England in hotels! Like a madhouse. They didn't want me as their king. I didn't know they voted for that in England. <laughs> if there's a war, America could be persuaded to help. I thought I might have a swim. Come along. I made them all agree, no pictures in our bathing suits. <laughs> we think they see all our flaws. But that's not what they're looking to find when they look to us. You too comfy back there? Yes, thank you. I now see how important this weekend was. To them, to us, to the world. To Hyde Park on Hudson. We could have sold tickets for this dinner and made ourselves a pile of money. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome this evening's guest moderator, Brian Brooks from Movie Line, and tonight's guest, Roger Michelle. Good evening, everybody. Good evening. So I just want to set up the sort of the historical context of of. The, the trailer that and the movie that um, that you guys just watched at the moment. This came at a real pivotal moment, um, historically speaking. Um, and I want you to just kind of in Britain was at a major crossroads in the, you know, in its 20th century history. And I want you to sort of just kind of describe like what was at stake. Yeah, sure. So this this is June 1939. So it's 12 weeks before war broke out in Europe, before England, uh, because of Hitler's invasion of Poland became embroiled in a, in a massive European conflict. And of course, at that time, and for good reason, um, many, indeed most people in this country, didn't want to get involved in another war in Europe. You know, we hadn't paid reparations to you guys for the, the first war. Um, the war seemed very far away, and it seemed a kind of uh, bickering, um, aggressive affair between the old countries. 
Many of the population of the, of the big metropolitan areas in this country were descendants of Italians or Germans. Um, so the prospect of going back to war in Europe was, was uh, remote. Um, the king and the queen who came here on that mission, if you like, to try and curry favor for your participation um, were not particularly popular either. And partly, and it was their first ever, the first time a reigning monarch had ever set foot either in America or in Canada. And they were partly unpopular because they were, they were kings and queens in, in a country that was the, uh, you know, the cradle of proper democracy. But also partly because the, um, the glamorous elder brother of this stuttering, awkward, gauche king, um, who looked like a, a film star, the elder brother wasn't allowed to be king because he wanted to marry an American, of course. So all that was stacked against them uh, when they came here. Um, and they were nervous and they were vulnerable and they felt everybody hated them. And they went to, uh, they went to Washington, they went to Congress, they were, they were received in the White House. And then they had this specially planned weekend up the Hudson at uh, Roosevelt's family house, the house owned by his mother. Um, and this, our film takes place over that weekend and is about that weekend, which is simultaneously um, uh, momentous and um, odd for, for many, many reasons. And just a historic, historic clarification, um, the king and queen George VI and Queen Elizabeth are the parents of the current British monarch, Elizabeth II. That's exactly that correct. right. And okay. they are, yeah. of course, the, the king and queen made famous by the king's speech, exactly. which uh, probably all of, all of you saw a couple of years ago. Um, and let's t I want to talk about the king's speech for a moment, which I, I loved. Um, and it, it was a, f uh, a film that... Um, came while we were really in the middle of the process of putting our film together. This film started um, as a radio play. It's written by Richard Nelson, who's a, uh, an American playwright who lives in Rhinebeck, um, a few miles from Springwood, from, from um, Roosevelt's house. And in fact, I'm meeting Richard in half an hour because he has a, a play, another play, about to open at the public theater um, a couple of blocks away from here. Um, and we started working on the play and turning it into a screenplay um, and then became aware that this other little film was being made on a, not a similar subject, but with similar characters. And then of course the film opened and there was a sort of tsunami of, of success uh, surrounding the, the wonderful King's Speech. And we began to think, well, what should we do? Should we not do our film? Um, should we abandon it? Um, we don't want to be seen as jumping upon some, you know, regal bandwagon. Um, and it, so, in fact, we made this film kind of in spite of the King's Speech and not because of it. But I do think the King's Speech is, is going to help us because it's a good prequel. You know, it's sort of like a, a marvelous Oscar-winning trailer for our film. Um, and it means that um, those of you who've seen the King's Speech will, will, will be able to bring a lot of backstory to this um, different story, but a, a story featuring two of the same characters. Yeah, and this is a very different story. Obviously, there's the American angle, um, which, of course, not so much in the King's speech. But um, while there was also this political intrigue 
um, with the king and queen coming to visit Franklin Roosevelt at his family home up, upstate, there was also parallel a very personal sort of intrigue happening as well. Um, and this actually, um, well, I'll let you kind of talk about that, but this, there was a, a, a woman involved who, um, with, with the president, and sh her notes sort of helped form the basis for what now became Hyde Park on Hudson. This, this is, um, this is a, a woman called Daisy Sookley. Daisy Sookley lived in Rhinebeck. And when she died around 15 years ago, in her 100th year, underneath her bed, she had left a box containing hundreds of letters uh, between her and um, FDR and, and diaries. And these um, were eventually published. Uh, a book, uh, the book is called Closest Companion. And it details um, an intimacy, an intimate relationship between the president and this rather shy, uh, retiring, um, quiet spinster, which went on for many, many years. Um, in, 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 the, in the movie, she's played uh, beautifully, wonderfully by Laura Linney. And as, as you say, the, the film is, uh, is an account of a collision of these two stories over one moonlit weekend. It's a bit like, in a way, it's a bit like Midsummer Night's Dream. You know, there's a, there's a full moon under which all kinds of odd things take place and the world turns in a, in a strange and remarkable way. I mean, I'm not sure how much uh, you're, you're aware of the fact that FDR had quite a complicated uh, domestic setup. He had a, an extremely sophisticated and quite modern uh, relationship with his wife. Um, and um, all, all this is you know, widely, uh, widely written about, but I'm not sure that it's um, appeared on, on film in this way before. And it's, and it's remarkable and intriguing. And then, but meanwhile, Eleanor Roosevelt, of course, is at this weekend, and she and she and FDR do seem to have a very important partnership. Would that be a fair way to describe that? Then? They have a fantastic partnership. I mean, I think they had an incredibly close and loving relationship, and I think they were great political partners as well. I mean, she would constantly bombard him with memos and, um, and demands and political ideas, and sometimes he got fed up with it because uh, Eleanor kept beating the drum on her favorite issues. But I think she radicalized his politics in a way uh, that was remarkable. And she obviously outlived him for, for many, many years and became an incredibly substantial political figure of her, of her own. I think it was, what was really fantastic about this movie, and I think that, you know, I think people have heard a little bit about it in, in more modern times, but, you know, are all these women who have had a major influence over FDR, of course, Eleanor, but then also his mother, and there was this one particular great scene where, and the house that they lived in was actually the mother's house. I mean, he was going up there on weekends, but it was her house, and she kind of ruled the roost. I mean, yes, he was president of the United States, <laughs> but when he was drinking too much, she'd come in like blistering crazy woman, you know. <laughs> well, there was a lot of bad drinking in that family. You know, her, her, her father, i.e. the mother's father, was a terrible bad drunk, and he died of drink. And so Mrs. Roosevelt, FDR's mom, was was really, really risk-averse whenever the, the booze came out. And FDR liked to drink, you know, he liked to drink very much. He liked to drink, he liked to play cards. He, he, he needed to relax, you know, he had a lot, 
a lot, a lot going on, and he relaxed in very conventional ways. You know? and, and Daisy was part of the relaxation, really. Yeah, Daisy, Daisy was part of that. Daisy was very much part of that undemanding, and an undemanding presence with whom he could um, let, the, let the cares of the world briefly slip off his shoulders. So the king and queen arrive. Um, there was trepidation on their part, just to begin with, because they realize that they aren't terribly popular. The king is living under the shadow of his more glamorous brother, who's basically at, who had already abdicated. Um, and then they come into this house, which is not maybe entirely unlike, unlike something that they've seen before. It's a country home, has some of the trappings of aristocracy, but it's a little bit, a, a little bit less uh, kept up, I would say, than, than probably that they were used to. But they were also confronted with some anti-British, overtly anti-British uh, depictions, which actually was interesting when, you, when I saw that in the movie, um, and you can talk about that a little bit, because um, I, they actually still have it up, some of these things on display at the actual FDR home of, of state. Well, these are, these are cartoons of the 1812 war uh, between Brit Britain and America, when I think, I think I was in Washington yesterday and somebody explained that British forces came in and burnt the White House down. I didn't, I didn't know that until yesterday. But these are, these are American cartoons depicting the British sailors and soldiers as uh, sort of apes and monkeys and uh, subhumans. They're sort of com comic, Nineteen, early 19th century cartoons, which still adorn the walls of, uh, of, of Springwood and which um, caused the king um, some uh, concern when, he, when he, he spotted them on his bedroom wall, as though, you know, FDR was being deliberately provocative. And uh, I think FDR probably was being deliberately provocative. I mean, the other thing that was arranged for them um, was a picnic, and uh, the picnic uh, was held up at Top Cottage, um, and even that was a kind of political act because the king and queen were uh, being welcomed into a proper American household and um, the, uh, Eleanor and FDR wanted them to partake in a proper democratic, pluralistic uh, American event, i.e. a picnic where you ate hot dogs. And the, 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 royal, the royal party were uh, really upset about the hot dog. They were very trepidatious about the hot dog. They didn't know whether they were being made fun of or whether something would be made of this hot dog. They'd never even eaten a hot dog, clearly. And uh, when, the, when the moment came, the king was presented with a silver platter of hot dogs. And the whole uh, picnic went silent. And sure enough, he picked up the hot dog and bit it. And everyone started clapping and applauding. Um, and um, in, a, in, a, in a way, that was the kind of pivot in the whole weekend. And anyway, really, that really just sort of melted the ice and, and, and actually had a major significance in, in, a, in a breakthrough between U.S. and British relations at the time. Well, when the king left that afternoon, he, they get on the train to go back to, to uh, Canada. He, 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 I was going to say emailed, he, tele <laughs> he te tele sent a telegram to the president um, saying that uh, their weekend marked a, a, a really important develop, development in the special relationship between our two countries, which is a phrase we've been using happily or unhappily ever since. Yeah, and actually, I think I just heard that recently uh, Bloomberg, our mayor in New York, um, was did a, a speech at the Conservative Party conference in, the, in, in I don't know, in the UK oh, somewhere. Okay, yeah. And he I used that. that exact Did he? Yeah. same thing, the special yeah. relationship, and that comes back to George VI um, from that it letter. It does. That was yeah. his, he, he coined that. And, and indeed, whenever you guys have an election, I always look out for the, the pictures of the candidates eating hot dogs because <laughs> it kind of makes them look cool and, you know, man of the people, et cetera, right. et cetera. All right, we're going to check out another clip from Hyde Park on Hudson.
Is my wife behaving herself? Yes. Has my mother calmed down? She's fine. It's like a madhouse. Don't worry. All's quiet on the upstairs front. He's definitely younger than I'd imagined. For a king, you know? Is he? They both seem nervous. That surprised me. Without some help from us, Daisy, there soon might not be an England to be king of. So I'd be nervous too. So this was right after, I think, Daisy got her first glimpse of the king and queen. Was that correct? In this, this is the in afternoon that, in that they arrived. In the afternoon they arrived, yeah. And, uh, and, and the, the president was eager to offer the king a cocktail. Um, and the president's mother was eager to offer the king a cup of tea. A cup of tea, yeah. And uh, <laughs> when, it, when it came to it, the, 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 the king walked into the room that you've just seen. And on one side of the room was a, a big silver tray with tea. And on the other side was a big silver tray with uh, cocktails, and he was obliged to choose between them. Um, I won't, I won't tell you which way he went, but um, <laughs> I won't either. <laughs> All right. Um, so talk about the casting. Um, um, Bill Murray, of course, plays FDR, who, and I did get a chance to see the movie, and I can tell you, it's it's a marvelous performance. Um, talk about what, was this something? Was it did it have, You know, was he just your absolute choice to be FDR? Um, and talk about some of the other casts yeah. as well. Well, um, it's, it's odd. When you make a film, you, 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 know, you usually have two or three people in mind for the leading part. And if you don't succeed with the first one, you move on to the second. But I, I realized pretty early on that I didn't really want to make this film without Bill Murray, um, which is problematic because Bill Murray is so very, very hard to get hold of. He doesn't have an agent. Yeah. Um, he has a kind of weird 0800 number where you can leave a sort of hopeless message. Um, <laughs> and he has a really? lawyer, but as Bill subsequently pointed out to me, every time you phone up the lawyer, um, it's just costing Bill Murray a load of money. And the lawyer can't get hold of him either. So um, I thought, the, the, well, the, the, I got him a script through somebody who lives here. I've made a film here uh, recently, and the, the props girl, called Chris Moran and she was a friend of Bill's so I I made a little care package for Bill with a script and a love letter and you know some some of my films and sent it off into the ether expecting not to uh, ever hear anything back and then about three months later I was in Los Angeles and my cell phone went and it was somebody uh, impersonating Bill Murray and in fact that person turned out to be Bill Murray so <laughs> that was good um, and from then on we have this sort of sporadic exchange of calls as I try to kind of, um, with a tiny hook, catch this, this, this very big fish. And eventually he, he committed to doing the thing. I mean, he was, he was interested from the very beginning. He was interested, intrigued, and had a real appetite for it. But he knew it was tricky as well. You know, he, Bill doesn't normally do parts which are such a distance from who he is. Uh, so it's a departure for him. But he. He did a lot of homework and prepared very thoroughly for the for the movie, and he's he's great in it. Yeah, I would think just the accents themselves must have been a lot of work. I mean, there there's particular accents um, that aren't part of the I think the general New York or well New York and even U.S. vernacular, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, I mean the the Roosevelts were very very anglophile in the way they spoke. 
Um, and he had to learn how to walk with uh, these, these special calipers that were, that were made for Roosevelt and with crutches. And we spent time with victims of polio um, and learned how to be carried and how to drive a car only using his hands and all, all, kinds, of, all kinds of stuff like that. Um, I mean, one of the remarkable things about the Roosevelt story, which you, you probably all know, but I didn't, was that during his presidency, nobody knew that he was uh, wheelchair bound. And in fact, the only, the only two photographs we have of Roosevelt in a wheelchair were taken by Laura Linney's character, the, the character you've just seen in that, in that clip. And one wonders, <clears throat> one wonders how, if today, a, a, a similar kind of conspiracy would ever hold you know, a conspiracy where the press um, agreed to withhold such a sort of defining truth about a president, about a, a major political figure. Yeah, I mean, that was just really interesting, um, just the whole media aspect about how the media did hold back and would, did not have pictures of, of Roosevelt showing his, his handicap. Um, and indeed, I think I believe you mentioned um, while we were in Toronto, I think you mentioned that that it was Daisy who actually took the only photo. Yeah, of she him. she took the only two photographs of him in a wheelchair that exist. Yeah. Okay. Well, should we look at clip number two? Yeah. Charming. Oh, look at that view. You must tell me about everything. Uh, that's the field. Oh, we have fields just like that. Th those hills. Yes. Lead down to the river. Oh. Oh, so that's where they go. So what, what are you doing? Came to see if I could be any help. Do you mind if I call you Elizabeth? No. No. <laughs> so that was a kind of a hilarious sort of awkward moment all the way through and uh, Queen Elizabeth, or showing Queen Elizabeth her room and trying to have nice chit-chatty conversation with Eleanor and then... <laughs> well, you know, Eleanor doesn't hold much truck by, you know, hereditary monarchy and why should she? So there are various moments where Eleanor is sort of required to curtsy and can't quite bring herself to curtsy. She sort of does a kind of awkward half bob. Um, but meanwhile, and then FDR's mother, meanwhile, was quite, quite yeah. starstruck by, totally. by them totally. being in. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Talk about a little bit, um, just while you were in production, I heard a little birdie told me that uh, um, Bill Murray liked to play music while at the... <laughs> Bill, Bill had a habit of bringing a very sort of loud uh, music box onto the set. You could hear him approaching. You knew, you knew when he was coming because you could hear kind of Eagles music from like 200 paces away. Um, and it was nice. I mean, he brought a nice, a very nice atmosphere into, into the room. All right. So let me see what uh, we might open up for questions. Yeah. Here we go. Third row all the way to your right. Hello. Hi. Um, you mentioned sort of the 
awkward situations, sort of the inherent humor. Do you write it like that, or do you just kind of trust the material is going to take care of itself and that the actors are going to kind of do their thing? I mean, how do you construct all that without looking like you're trying to make it awkward? Well, I mean, it's, it's, in the, it's there in the writing. Uh, it's written like that. But then it needs, it usually needs a little bit of unraveling with the actors to make it feel, you know, clear but real. Um, and it's, it's, it's a matter of finding the balance, I guess, between it being funny and it being real. And uh, if, in if in doubt, in my view, always, always err on the side of it being real. And if it's funny, hopefully it'll look after itself. Did, did, was there sort of a little bit of free reign for the actors to kind of feel their way, or are you, are you a little well, more? Uh, well, we, we, we had a rehearsal week in which, uh, you know, the writer was there, and, uh, but, but by and large, the script was respected by the actors. It's, it's a good, you know, it's a good piece of writing, and I think that we, I can't remember messing around with it too much. Okay, anybody else? I see a question in the second row. How did the British aristocracy dealt with American aristocracy who had wealth? Say that again. How did the British aristocracy... The British aristocracy dealt with American aristocracy who had actually wealth as opposed to British aristocracy who, who didn't? It felt, to, it felt to me like the Roosevelt's were, were sublime American aristocracy. I mean, almost American royalty. The Roosevelt's thought of themselves as being, you know, upper Hudson Valley uh, aristocracy par excellence. So I think, I, well, I, I know that Roosevelt was always ridiculously impressed by royals. And he made a trip to England in, the, uh, in about 1920 when he was Secretary of State for the Navy and was incredibly impressed to meet the then King uh, and Queen of England. Um, I mean, I, I, think it's, I think it's possible that um, an interest in royalty is, is even stronger here than it is in England, where we're, when we're rather cynical about our royal family and very keen to see the, the faults and uh, peccadilloes and errors and uh, difficulties that they're in. And, and, and it feels like a, a constant adventure for when members of the royal family come here. You know, m m most recently, the, royal, the, the, the couple who just got married, um, I can't remember what they're called, William and, <laughs> William and somebody. Uh, somebody very beautiful, you know, and, and, and it seems that they're, they're even more of a fairy story in this country than they are in the UK. But it's, it's still, a, it, their, their kind of brand is still a dazzling success in England, you know, is, is dazzling. And it doesn't seem to diminish. Uh, and this new generation of royals are, are very glamorous and young and, um, you know, once again, poor old Prince Charles is being eclipsed by his own family in a way. Um, the man who, the man who's still waiting to lurch onto the throne, with a Zimmer frame, you know. I think. Do you have a question? Right, right next. A historical political question, recognizing the fact that even at that time, the British royalty really had no purview over the formulation of foreign policy. That was the prime minister and, and the cabinet. Yet in the U.S., Roosevelt clearly was at the helm of the decision-making process. How much, if at all, did this weekend have an impact on either American or British decision makers to cement the alliance 
or to further the Lend-Lease Act and the ultimate entry of the United States into the war? Well, the Lend-Lease Act was Roosevelt's initiative, as you know, and um, although they have no constitutional power, the royal family then and even now still have political uh, and commercial effect. When they go and, and make, uh, when they visit another country or whatever, it's, it's, I think it's all judged very carefully in conjunction with British foreign policy. I think it's an arm of, 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 of British foreign policy, in fact. And this was no exception. The, 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 visit to, the visit to Canada and America in 1939 was done absolutely with the connivance uh, and uh, blessing and uh, consideration of, of, the, of the British uh, Foreign Office. So I, I, I think it had, had a major, uh, to answer your question, I think it had a major impact um, on American um, on American public uh, the public view Americans had of, of England and I think that it did sow the seeds for the support that Roosevelt gave to Britain during those first two years of the war before Pearl Harbor and I think that that had a massive impact on Hitler actually because I think that Hitler um, realized that uh, America probably would come into a war if he invaded uh, Great Britain in 1940. Um, and I think that um, it was um, a seismic and brave and odd decision by Roosevelt to, to go against his party and his country um, to, um, and very far-sighted of him to realize that this was a war that was gonna ultimately uh, impact on, on this country and on the world. I think most people thought the war would fizzle out in Europe. I see a question over here in the middle, in the second row. How about Daisy's character? Did you have Laura Linney in mind from the very beginning, like Bill Murray, or did she hold auditions and she made you see Daisy in her? A bit, of, a bit, um, a bit of both. I mean, I saw a few other actors for that part, but once I'd met Laura, I figured that she was the, the right, absolutely the right person. I mean, she's a very interesting historical character, uh, Daisy. Do you know anything? Do you know a little bit about Daisy? Um, She's a, you know, she, at, the, at the beginning of the film, she's um, she's from a rich family who've, lo who've lost all their money in the in the depression. She's living with a maiden aunt. She's really a nurse to her aunt, and she's kind of a spinster who's given up on everything. Well, like a sort of Jane Austen character. And then she gets drawn into this uh, court, you know, the court surrounding FDR, and it's a it's a great journey for her. And interesting because she probably played a very heavy role in, our, in, in, in our history, and yet so many people do not know her. I think that's right. Yeah. We have time for two more questions. I have one. Oh, that's great! Right here, all the way to the right, front row. Uh, this is kind of a two-part question. Uh, first one being, who's your biggest influence as a filmmaker, and uh, what's next? Can I answer, answer the second bit of that first, because that's the easy bit. I'm shooting a, a film in Paris, um, and I start um, three weeks' time shooting a little film about a, cu a couple in their 60s. They're just about 60, and they're going back to Paris to uh, celebrate their wedding anniversary. Their kids have just, their grown-up kids have just left home, um, and um, they're going to find out really whether they have anything left for each other. So they go back to the hotel that they stayed in 30 years before. And of course now this hotel is horrible and tiny and um, 
disastrous. And, and, the, and the wife goes nuts and she jumps in a cab and she insists that they go to like the Georges Saint or somewhere like that. And she slaps her credit card on the, on, the, on the receptionist counter and she says, give us the best room in the house. And from there on, the, the weekend goes, goes weird in a, in a fun way. And one of the people they meet there is, um, is someone he was at, he was at college with, uh, played by Jeff Goldblum. And they kind of see their, they see their lives in the, in the context of his life, which is much more glamorous, blah, 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 blah. So that's what I'm doing next. Uh, what's my biggest influence? I really, I, that's, that would be hard for me to answer in, in such a short space of time. I can't, I can't single out a single person or thing. I mean, I spent my first uh, 20 years of my career working in theater and I still do theater all the time. So I guess that, that's my background. That's where I came out of. And we have our final question right in front of you in the third row. I'm behind you. Hi, um, I have a question based on, because um, you said this is like a, a you said King's Speech is a prequel, kind of a, 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 a Academy Award trailer to this movie. Um, how well do you think the casting for King George that you chose would like transition to this movie for people who've seen King's Speech? It was like, it was a really, really big film, so yeah. Good question. Well, I mean, everyone at the moment has uh, a, Colin's face imposed upon uh, Bertie. And um, uh, all I can hope is that when they come and see this story, which is a different story and a different version of that character, uh, that, that face wears off gradually as the film unspools and they end up with Sam West's face replacing it. But it's like playing Hamlet. You know, there's room for a million actors to do these parts. So um, I feel very, very... Uh, comfortable with Sam's uh, brilliant characterization. And I'll second that, haven't seen. So um, the, the uh, Hyde Park on Hudson um, has its US premiere at the New York Film Festival tomorrow, and Focus Features will have it um, rolling out in theaters beginning December 7th. December 7th, um, starting. And um, thank you to Roger Mitchell for thank joining you. us at the Apple Store here today. And thanks, New York Film Festival. Thank you, Apple. Thanks, Focus. Thanks.